It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by ecospace.com. Now, here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I am your host, Adam A. Adams, and today we are here with Jay Scott. And I'm excited because what we're going to be talking about with Jay today is how to build your business around your life, not how to build your life around your business. That's the wrong way to do it. And Jay Scott is the expert on this. Jay, how'd you get into real estate in the first place? So, hey, very nice to be here. Thanks for having me on, Adam. Really loved your podcast over the years. So, this is, this is, this is great. I started in real estate back in 2008. My wife and I lived in California. We met in the tech industry. She worked for a big tech company. I worked for a big tech company. And when we decided to get married and start a family, we both had lifestyles that weren't particularly conducive to having a family. She was traveling literally three and a half weeks a month. I was traveling a week or two a month. So we knew that wasn't sustainable. So when we decided to get married, we decided to leave the tech industry move across the country back east close to our families and we figured that once we got back we would figure out what to do. We didn't know exactly what we wanted to do but we knew that we wanted to do something that would allow us to put our family first. So we had spent 15 years in the corporate world kind of putting businesses first, our companies first and we really wanted to start doing something that would allow us to grow a family build our family, be with our kids, never miss a soccer game, never miss a piano recital when we had kids. So we moved back summer of 2008. We moved to Atlanta. It was, I don't know, for those of you that were investing back in the summer of 2008, you probably remembered it was probably one of the worst times in, in history for being a retail real estate person. But as an investor, it was actually a pretty good time. Atlanta had gotten hit tremendously hard from the downturn. Uh, there were foreclosures everywhere. So we got into flipping houses and I'm not a real estate person. My wife wasn't a real estate person, but we just decided let's try flipping a house in the summer of 2008. We flipped one, we flipped two, we flipped three. And before we knew it, that kind of ended up being the business that we got into first. And so again, Atlanta 2008, it was really easy. I don't I don't give myself too much credit for starting out strong. Um, basically, if you had MLS access, you could kind of throw a dart at the MLS and whatever you hit was probably going to be a good deal. So we did, I think, 14 deals our first year and we got up to like 20 some deals our second year. And then by years three, four, and five, we're doing like 40 deals a year. Now, the cool thing was that it took a little while but my wife and I are both business people. Again, we're not real estate people. I never liked real estate, but I like business and I like scaling businesses and growing businesses, creating systems and processes. So um, we spent the first couple of years of our business basically figuring out how to scale and build up so that we could do our 30 or 40 houses a year. But we were doing that in five to 10 hours a week. And so that gave us the time to kind of do what we wanted with our family, start raising our kids who we had shortly after we got married. It allowed us to pursue other business and investing interests. So from the very start, we kind of took this, this attitude that we're just going to do what we like. We're going to figure out how to scale it, and then we're going to build our life around that business as opposed to the other way around. That is awesome because I believe that most people just do it the whole opposite way. And, yep. and I'm raising my hand. I'm, I'll just be honest. I, I, I try, I'm like, this is what I need to have success. This is what I need to do to have success. 
And then I'm like, when am I going to see my kids? You know, when am I going to, you know, go out on dates and, and, and make, you know, enjoy myself and go to the gym and, and exercise? Because I felt like I didn't have the time. I felt like because I, I did it the wrong way, the way that you're telling me not to do it. You know, I, I, was, I was gaining weight. I was eating, stress eating. I was snapping at the kiddos. But you have a, a whole other way to do this. I, I remember you said it was 2008 when you got started after 15 years in the corporate world. And you live in Atlanta? We did. Uh, we're in D.C. now. D.C. All right. And you got it up to like the third year where you were doing 40 deals a year. Mm-hmm. And when I remember when I did nine fix and flips over a course of two whole years, I was stressed. I'll just be honest. Nine fix and flips over the course of two years. What is that's an average of four a year, and you were doing 40 per year. But you did it, and and you had lifestyle. Yep. You played with your kids. You went to the soccer games. You went to piano re- uh, recitals. So th- what I want to find out from you is. How does someone like me or how does someone like the listener who's planning to get inside of this business and, and do it and be successfully, how do we shift our mindset so that we put, you know, our family and our life and our health first before the business? So let me start with the, the, the real simple answer first. Or it's not easy, but it's simple. Uh, the first thing you have to do is make the decision to do it. Ultimately, um, whether you put your family first or your business first, whether you put time freedom first or money first, that's a decision. And I'm not going to tell somebody what the right or wrong decision is. I know plenty of people that put their career over their family and that's what they want to do. That's great. As long as they're happy and their family are happy and, and their spouses are happy, all the more power to them. Um, I know people that would rather make lots of money than have lots of free time. Again, that's a personal decision. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. I'm inherently lazy, (laughs) not lazy, but I like my time. I like my downtime. I like my family time. So for me, if I have to choose between time or money, as long as I have enough money that I don't need to stress and my family doesn't need to stress, I'm going to choose time all day. So that's the first thing. You need to decide what's important to you and then make the decisions in your life that prioritize those things that allow you to get that. So first thing. Next is, is more the, the tactical. So how do you do that? And from my perspective, part of the reason why my wife and I, I think, have been pretty good at real estate is because we came into this business knowing absolutely nothing. We know a lot of people that started out as contractors. I have a lot of friends who are th- second, third generation real estate investors, developers. Um, I have friends that started out in the mortgage business or the inspection business, or they were appraisers or real estate agents. They came in with a background in real estate So they felt like they knew real estate. So when it came to doing investment deals, they're like, I know how to do this. And they jump right in. My wife and I, on the other hand, we until 2008 had never bought our first property, even to live in as our personal residence. So we knew absolutely nothing about real estate. And when we decided to get into real estate, we approached it not as a real estate investing business, but we approached it as a business. And we approached it the same way as if we had we're starting a company that sold shoes or a restaurant or a consulting business or any other business that had something as as its inventory that was being bought and sold. For us, that inventory was houses, but that didn't matter. We were building a business and we didn't care about the nuts and bolts of 
not only did we not care, but we didn't know about the nuts and bolts of renovating houses and getting a house, houses appraised or inspected. We didn't know any of that. So being business people, we decided we're going to build a business and we're going to hire people to take care of the details, the stuff that we don't want to be involved in day to day. Now, building it as a business allowed us to kind of step away and control our time more. Nobody told us, well, the contractors are going to be there from eight to five, so we need to be on site from eight to five. No, we had a project manager that was there from eight to five, or there was whatever, there was an appraisal or an inspection or a showing. We had agents, we had inspectors, we had appraisers, and we didn't try and micromanage these people. We tried to run our real estate company the same way we would run a thousand or 10,000 person company. We use the same processes, the same systems that we saw in the big companies that we work for. My wife worked for a 30,000 person company. I worked for an 80,000 person company. And we tried to implement the same systems and processes that these, same, that these big companies were implementing in our business so that we could have control, we could have time control, and we weren't dealing in the in the in the micromanagement of the day-to-day issues all right all right so there's two parts and so i can put these in the notes what what is the short version of the first part and the short version of the second part the so of the two things you need to do yes yes Uh, so the short version of the first part is you need to make the decision that you're going to either focus on your career or you're going to focus on your family you're either going to focus on time or you're going to focus on money Got it. And that's a decision. Again, no right answer, no wrong answer. I'm not going to tell somebody that they have to do what I did. And the second piece is implement the systems and processes that a big business would in your small business so that your small business can grow efficiently like a big business. Focus and the, the cliche is you work on your business, not in your business. I love that. And, and we can look at so many different businesses out there. So we can talk about like a handyman Mm -hmm. is usually going to be working in the business normally. They've, they became the person who was handy at doing a few different things. And if, if they get sick, if, if they're they they hurt their leg, they're not making income because they're the one and only person working in the business. And that's what a lot of real estate people are doing. They're becoming the handyman of real estate. Yep. They're, they're finding a way to say, I want to do this. So that means I have to cold call. I have to send direct mail. I have to stamp every letter. I have to write every letter. It has to be handwritten because of this. So it's going to take me a lot of time, but don't worry. It's going to make me more successful. And I have to be the one when, when somebody answers a call, I have to go and be at the houses, doing the house calls, looking at the property. And when they do that, they shut themselves down and they've become working a ton. Every single time that they make a grape, they make the entire grape. So don't worry, they make the whole grape. But what you're kind of sharing with us is that you find a way to say, there's a company that has 30,000 employees, 50,000 employees, and there's so many details, so many things that need to be happening in this real estate business that why wouldn't it be in my best interest to hire somebody to send out letters, to hire somebody to make cold calls, to hire somebody to go out to the properties, to hire somebody to fill out the contracts, to hire somebody to write my copy, all of these different parts to do your accounting, to do the bookkeeping, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now you're able to sit back 
spend time with your kids, going to piano recitals, going to soccer game practice, enjoying yourself on uh, on a day, being able to share your experience with me uh, today and, and me and the whole audience, right? Because you've designed it that way, because you've decided to turn this into a real business. So let me ask you, as far as the business goes, if somebody's getting involved today and they haven't yet gotten started. And this obviously works for any business. It works for a multifamily business like mine. It works for a shoe selling business like Mm -hmm. you alluded to earlier. And it works for a wholesaling or fix and flip business. So kind of share with me what are the first things, the first people that you hire out and just kind of get it off of your plate. What would you say there? Sure. Well, let me step back a little bit because I think there's a step before you figure out who you're going to hire. And I can talk all about the systems and processes that we use in our business, but there's there's a first piece that we need to do before we even go down the road of tactical implementation. And that's, again, think about how a big company works. So I worked for Microsoft for a long time. And if anybody that's worked for a big corporation knows that Every company is segmented into departments. So you go to a Microsoft or an accounting company or whatever big company you work for, and there's going to be a marketing department. There's going to be a sales department. There's going to be an engineering department if it's a tech company. There's going to be a quality assurance department. There's going to be a department that writes the documentation. There are going to be people that do the hiring, the HR department. There's going to be a thousand different, not a thousand, but there's going to be a dozen different departments and each department has a very specific role. You're not going to see the person that writes the documentation decide one day, okay, I'm going to go over to the engineering department and start writing some software. And you're not going to see the engineers decide, well, today I'm going to go uh, write the marketing copy. No, people are in their department. They get really, really, really good at what it is their department is supposed to do. um, And that's what they focus on. And they let the other departments take care of what they're really good at. So the first thing I tell people is figure out what the segmentation of your business looks like. What are those departments of your business? And every business is is going to be different. And the way I tell people the best way to to figure this out is go gather up all your to-do lists from the last two weeks or two years or 10 years. And for everything on your to-do list, write down one task on a sticky note and do that for every task on your to-do list for as many to-do lists as you can find. And hopefully you have a hundred, a thousand, five thousand sticky notes. Take those sticky notes and start putting them on the wall and start organizing them in some way that makes sense. And you're going to be moving things around, but you're going to see that hmm, this task kind of goes with this task and this goes with this and this goes with this. And by the time you have all these hundred or thousand or five thousand sticky notes on the wall, what you're going to see is that patterns have emerged. They're going to be groups of sticky notes and there are going to be two groups or three groups or five groups or 10 groups. Those are the segments of your business. So I actually did this. And, and this was back in 2009 or 10. I literally sat down with all my to-do lists from a couple years previous. Somebody had, had recommended this. And I put them up on the wall. And what I found was there were four groups that emerged. There was a whole bunch of tasks around acquisition of houses. There was a whole bunch of tasks around rehab of houses. There was a whole bunch of tasks around disposition or selling of houses. And there was a whole bunch of tasks around raising money. And then there were a few outliers here and there that were just extra stuff, which ultimately I determined those were the things that weren't really important in my business. So I figured that there were four segments of my business that were important. Acquisition, rehab, disposition, and raising money. Suddenly that became the segments of my business. Those were the quote unquote departments of my business. 
And then from there, I drilled down further. So on the acquisition side, there was finding deals. There was running numbers and doing budgets. There was creating schedules. There was dealing with closing issues. There was dealing with inspections. Um, there was finding contractors and hiring contractors. There was doing scope of work. So under acquisition, I had about a dozen different sub segments or sub pieces. Under rehab, I had a dozen different sub segments. Under disposition and raising money, I had a dozen different sub segments. So these were the four main segments and the dozen sub segments under each of those. Those were the various pieces under each department. Now that I had that, now that I had the 40 or so pieces of my business, I can now focus on optimizing each of those pieces of the business. Same way a big company does it. So Microsoft deals with, they have a group of people that find customers, they have a group of people that write marketing copy, they have a group of people that deal with fulfillment and deal with customer issues. And that's what I was doing in my little business the same way this big business did it. So then it was my job to go out and figure out for each piece of the business, each segment, each sub-segment, how can I optimize, how can I build systems and processes around each of those segments and sub-segments? And that basically boiled down to a few things. One, delegating. So I needed to have somebody in my business that could deal with each sub-segment or each segment. At the beginning, it was basically, it was my wife and myself. We hadn't hired anybody at the beginning. So we decided she's really good at acquisition and marketing selling and dispersing. So she took those two boxes. I was really good at the rehab piece and raising money. So those are my two boxes. So then we hired our first employee. It was a project manager. So the project manager came in and mostly did stuff in the rehab box. Then we brought in a full-time agent. Well, she mostly did stuff in the acquisition, the disposition box. And we brought in more and more people over time, some contractors, some full-time employees, but everybody filled a very specific role. So delegation was the next big thing that we did. You have to hire, you have to bring in people. It doesn't necessarily have to be full-time employees, but you have to have other people doing the work or you're going to find yourself working in your business, not on it. Next. Good. No, no. I was going to ask you and then you already started. So we're perfect. We're perfect. Yeah. Go, to the, go to number two. Yeah. So, so once you segment your business, once you start delegating tasks, the next big thing is to document. So the biggest problem I see with a lot of business owners, and I made this mistake myself, case in point, uh, I hired my first project manager in late 2008. And I was learning the business at the same time I brought him in. He was a really good, uh, he was really good at organization and management, but he didn't have the real estate background. So I brought him in late 2008 and I said, we're going to learn this business together. You're going to be my project manager. I'm going to, we're going to spend the next couple months, you and me sitting in a car, driving around, um, meeting contractors, dealing with budgets, dealing with schedules, all the stuff that a, a project manager does. But since I don't really know the business either, I'm going to do it with you. And we spent like three or four months driving around doing all the stuff a project manager does. After four months, he basically looked at me. It, it, he was nice about it, but he basically looked at me and he said, yeah, I think I understand this business pretty well now. I'm going to go do it myself. And he quit. Mm, okay. So, here we are. I'm back to square one. I find another project manager, somebody else that's really good with management. He's good with numbers. He's good with budgets and schedules, but he doesn't know real estate. So now I'm back. It's the situation where I need to teach him how to be a project manager. And so what did I have to do? I had to sit in the car with him for three or four months to teach him the job. And it hit me at that point that every time I lose a project manager, I'm going to end up sitting in a car for three or four months training the next person. Or if he goes on vacation for a week and I want somebody else to fill in for him, I'm going to have to train that person. Or if I don't do that, I'm going to have to do it myself. So that's when it hit me that what do big companies do? They have documentation. So every role is well documented. These are the systems and processes that, that a 
that a project manager implements. So here's a checklist for doing inspections when they first look at a house. Here's a checklist for creating a scope of work. Here's a checklist for ordering materials. Here's a checklist for contracts for contractors and doing a um, scope of work and doing a pay schedule. And here are all the different checklists and, and lists and forms and documentation for each person in the business so that they can do their job. And if they have to be replaced or if they go on vacation, the person that comes in to take over after them, they don't need me to spend six months training them. They have the documentation. I might spend a couple days or I might have somebody else spend a couple days, but ultimately if they have a question, so what's the, what light fixtures do we use in a mid-level house in, in the dining room? Well, here's the SKUs. Here are the three SKUs and here's when we use each one. It's documented. We don't have to answer that question. My wife doesn't have to do design work for each house. Um, and so what I did for the second project manager was, okay, we're going to spend three or four months in a car. That's okay. I've accepted that. But your job, part of your job responsibility now is as we spend three or four months in the car, I want you to be documenting everything you're learning and everything you're doing in this job so that if you ever leave, that documentation is basically training for your replacement. Now, he was with us for nine years. That was great. But we hired project managers in other locations. And we were able to take that documentation and basically hand it to the project managers in other cities. We had to make some changes because there are obviously changes for, for different areas and, and different types of houses. But we had 90% of the training already completed by the time my, my second project manager was, was up and running. That's really, really cool. Is there, what, so, so number one way that, okay, so you had to optimize your 40-ish different tasks within the four different groups and you started by segmenting, that was number one, and then you started delegating, that was number two, and number three is your documenting. Is that accurate? That is correct. So segmentation, delegation, documentation, you probably see a pattern here. Yes. What's, what's next? So the next thing, um, what I realized, and, and we had a, an aha moment with this too. Everything in our business has been aha moments. We realize something, we fix it. We realize something, we fix it. And, and it's taken time. So this wasn't something, this, this whole systems and processes wasn't something we put in place in a week or two. This was over a couple of years. The next aha moment we had was that my wife, who absolutely loves design, decided that for these $100,000 houses that we were renovating and we were buying for $40,000, we were putting $25,000 into them and selling them for $100,000. So low-end houses, my wife was doing custom design packages for every one of these houses. And so literally she would spend six hours walking the, the, the aisles at Home Depot or Lowe's for every house because okay, I want this, this house to look like this. This is going to be mid-century, whatever. I don't know all the terms. But she, she wanted custom designs for every one of these houses. And she would pick custom paint colors and she would pick accent walls and all that stuff. And we were spending a ridiculous amount of money or a ridiculous amount of time designing each house that we bought. And that's when it hit us. There's no reason. We have $100,000 houses. Somebody who buys one house is never going to see the other ones. So even if they all look alike, as long as they're all beautiful, nobody's going to say, wow, look at all these different houses. No, that's, our buyers weren't going to be picking and choosing between houses. So we started to, to replicate our systems. We started using the same paint colors for everything. That added several benefits. One, we didn't have to spend the time picking paint colors for, for every project. So that saved us time there. Two, we never ran into the problem of, we, we once had contractors, painters, who painted our trim in our house purple because somewhere a number got mixed up and they saw the, the, the Sherwin-Williams color number that, that was on the sheet was a light purple. Who thinks trim should be light purple? But that's what was on the sheet, so that's what they did. They didn't ask any questions. 
we never ran into that problem again because we used the same paint, same paint colors for all of our houses, the same three color paint scheme. And then third, it allowed us to get bulk discounts. So if we were using painters on five jobs and they knew that they had, we had five houses in the pipeline and they knew that we we're going to use the same colors for every job, they could go out and buy 200 gallons of paint as opposed to 20 gallons of paint at a time and get volume discounts. So three big benefits there. And so, and then we did that on everything. We did that with our paint. We did that with our flooring. We did that with our appliances, our cabinets, our countertops, our carpeting. We did that with our light fixtures, our plumbing fixtures. We did that with absolutely every part of our business. And we started as part of our documentation, we just had a list of SKUs and a list of materials that we used for every job. So our contractors knew, they never had to say, what kind of cabinets do you want in, in this house? I would call my kitchen guy. He'd come out, he'd measure. He knew what kind of cabinets and countertops we used in every kitchen and he'd send me a price. So we never had to make any decisions. Our Home Depot, my project manager could take out, pull out the checklist and he could say, okay, we need three fan lights. We need one dining room hanging fixture. We need a kitchen faucet. We need four of these sink faucets for the bathroom, whatever. And he'd do two of these, four of these, one of these, make a list, fax it into Home Depot. Home Depot, we had a guy at the contractor desk who would get it. He'd run it through the bid desk he'd call me up and he'd say, I just got your, your list for whatever house, 123 Main Street. It's going to come to $16,082. I'd say, okay, good. Put it on the credit card on file and have it delivered on Tuesday. So the total amount of time that I spent dealing with basically all the materials, all the decisions on materials and getting them delivered was a one minute phone call to my, my bid desk guy who called me to just verify that the final number was right. Wow. So, so replication is the next piece there. And Perfect. Let me, let me make a note here. Replication is number four. So that's the next piece. Next big piece, and this, this is something that I find that a lot of investors don't think above, enough about, is just the numbers. We made sure to know our numbers cold in our business. For every one of the segments in our business, for every sub-segment in the business, we kept metrics. So one of the most obvious examples is just around uh, acquisition. So we did a lot of direct mail early on. And we knew going in that for every 5,000 pieces of mail we sent, we would get an average of about 61 phone calls. Of those 61 phone calls, 18 of them would turn into on-site visits. And of those 18 on-site visits, that would turn into 1.8 deals. And numbers aren't that good today, but back then, every 5,000 pieces of mail, we'd get about 1.8 deals. And so that knowing that allowed us to do two things on the acquisition side. One, we could say, if we want to do 50 deals this year, we need to send X number of pieces of mail. We know that 5,000 pieces of mail gets us 1.8 deals. So if we want 50,000, or if we want 50 deals, we need to send about 500,000 or however many it is. Uh, I can't do the math here. Um, however many uh, pieces of mail, and that's how many deals we should get. But it also allowed us to optimize each piece in the chain. We knew that 5,000 letters was getting us 61 phone calls. Well, let's do some split testing. What if we used green letters instead of yellow letters? What if we used a handwriting font instead of a type font? What if we actually signed the bottom of the paper ourselves or my wife wrote a little note at the bottom of the paper? What if we used first class postage versus bulk postage? We could do all these things to see if that, if that 5,000 to 61 ratio, we could get to 5,000 to 63 or 5,000 to 65. And then for each piece, we had metrics. We knew that Okay, those 61 
phone calls turned into 18 site visits? How do we get that to 20 site visits? And how do we get those 20 site visits instead of 1.8 deals? How do we get that to 2.1 deals? And how do we optimize each piece of the process? So one, it allowed us to set goals for our business because we knew our numbers. And two, it allowed us to optimize each piece of our business. And we did that everywhere. Um, we kept metrics for all of our rehab stuff, for our budgets, for our schedules. We knew how weather affected our, our budgets and our schedules, how different seasons of the year affected our budgets and our schedules. We knew how permits in different areas would affect our budgets and schedules. Um, on the disposition side, we knew our listing to sale ratio, what, what the numbers were. So we knew that if typically we're 97.6% of list price is what we would sell our properties for, Basically, we could factor that in at the beginning when we did the analysis of the deal. We think the ARV is 200000 Well, we typically sell our houses for 97.6% of that. So the ARV is actually probably about $4,600 less because we had that historical data. And we did that for every piece of the business. We knew our numbers cold. So there were very few surprises. And that allowed us to optimize each piece of our business so that we weren't wasting time and we weren't wasting money. I love it. Let's transition a little bit. I, I've gained a lot, um, yep. but I want to find out a little bit more about what is the Bigger Pockets podcast that you're now the host of. Okay, so, so they have Bigger Pockets and, yep. and then they got Bigger Pockets money. Yep. And now they have a third one. Yes. So they started with the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast back in 2013. Um, hugely successful. Um, they've had over 63 million downloads in the past six years. Uh, they get about 250,000 listeners per week. Uh, Brandon Turner, David Green are, are just built an amazing machine there. Um, about a year ago, they launched Bigger Pockets Money, which is a podcast focused on personal finance. And to expand their, their brand a little bit further, Bigger Pockets decided a few months ago that they wanted to launch a podcast called Bigger Pockets Business. And my wife and I, my wife Carol and I, are hosting the Bigger Pockets Business podcast. Basically, every week we interview uh, entrepreneurs, founders, business owners about how they started, grew, scaled, and optimized their business. And we talk to people from, from early on business owners who are doing like just, just a few thousand dollars a week and are just getting their business started to big business owners, people who have taken their companies public and who have sold their companies um, and everywhere in between. So the, it, it's basically for anybody that, that wants to, to figure out how to, to start, grow, and scale their business. All right. So how do we find the podcast? What's the best way to find Bigger Pockets business? So go to whatever podcast app you use, whether it be iTunes, whether it be uh, Google Play or Google Podcasts or Spotify. Basically, whatever you're listening to Adam Adams Awesome Podcast on, go there, do a search for Bigger Pockets business, and just hit the subscribe button. Love it. Love it. Jay, how do people find you? How do they reach out to you? Yep. I am on Facebook at J Scott Investor. So facebook.com slash J Scott Investor. Uh, I am on Twitter at 123flip and I'm on Instagram at J Scott underscore 123flip. So reach out to me there. Anybody that wants to send me an email, the letter J at 123flip.com. Love it. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I got a ton of value just really going over the ways that you can scale a business and make a business a business, which is the problem that I think most people have is that they treat real estate investing like some type of hobby or just random and, and they, it, it just takes too much out of you when you're treating it like that. But you found a way to really design your lifestyle 
design your business around your lifestyle. So I, I guess what I should say, thank you for coming on. I hope people go to your podcast, Bigger Pockets Business. And if you're coming from our podcast and you're going to go and check his podcast out, do me a giant favor. Leave him uh, the rating and review that you think he deserves. I think it's going to be a five-star rating and review just from what I heard from him today. Thanks again, Jay Scott. And until next time, my friend, think outside the box. Thank you so much for listening to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. And if you got value from this episode of the podcast, please take the time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Give us a written rating and a review. We'd really, really appreciate it. I'm going to let you go. But until next time, think outside the box. <laughs>